So, um, if you were here on the first Sunday of the new year, we talked about New Year's resolutions, and you might remember that most of the New Year's resolutions that were the top five in the US has something to do with food. Don't know if you have a New Year's resolution to do with food. It seems to be the way it goes. Um, food for every human being on the planet is a huge deal, uh, isn't it? Whether you are one of the 800 million people who will wake up this morning without enough food, it was struggling to know where your next meal's coming from, or whether uh, you are one of the 2 billion people now on the planet who is struggling at the other end of the spectrum because you have too much food and you don't know how to keep your weight in check. Um, whether you don't know where food's coming or whether you are struggling to know what to eat that's healthy, it's a big deal. The global diet and weight management industry is worth $192 billion. It's one of the fastest growing industries in the world. And more than a third of that global industry is based here in the United States. Now, I am not qualified to talk much about weight or nutritional value, even though the Bible has things to say about it, like, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? But I think I am going to take on the challenge of talking about the spirituality and the joy of food in the Bible. Um, one theologian said this, the average human has about 10,000 taste buds. And the only explanation I can conceive for why that would be is that God loves us, that he really loves us. Our 10,000 taste buds are a display of grace, an expression of his love. Uh, Laura and I had a pastor who married us who was absolutely convinced that Jesus was a very fat man um, because so much of the writing of the New Testament concerns food. So on our birthday, our second birthday, when we're celebrating, I thought, because it's the next bit of our Luke series together, why not take a Sunday to look at two of the practices in the kingdom of God which relate to food? So you up for it? Good. All right, you might not be by the end, but you are now. Okay, let's have our reading, which comes from the video screen, which is in your Bibles if you have it. Luke chapter 5, 27 to 39. Luke 5, 27 to 39. 27 to the end. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? By the, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours, out, pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst its skin, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say, 
the old is better. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of celebration. And uh, as we discuss and debate and look into this really interesting passage in Luke's gospel, would you open up our hearts, open up our eyes, open up our ears to understand you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Jewish world, the Jewish calendar, Jewish society centered around two practices to do with food. The first one was feasting, and the second one was fasting. They were in symmetry to one another. They governed so much of Jewish life. And so they are, as you've just heard, right in the center of Luke's gospel. And so I thought, why not explore them a little bit? What does feasting have to say to us, if anything, in this world that we live in today? What does fasting have to say uh, in this world? How might we do them if we are to do them? What is the spiritual significance of them? So we're going we're gonna to go for it and see what we can find out. All right. So um, this picture... Uh, of a feast. Anyone recognize that one? Anyone know where it comes from? Quick shout out. Last Supper. But it's actually a Jewish feast. It's a celebration of something. Passover. Excellent. In the Jewish world, there were very many different feasts. There was Passover, the unleavened bread, first fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Tabernacle, and, and many others as well. They were these coming together. They were religious gatherings of people from different households, different families, different communities who would center their time around a meal of eating and drinking wonderful food to celebrate to celebrate something particularly that God had done in a time, in a moment of a history. They were to give thanks. But as well as Jewish feasts that happened around the time of Jesus, there was a whole second set of great eating practices. And they were in the Greco-Roman world. And they were the idea of a banquet or a symposium. Now, they didn't really have like a Jewish religious connotations, but they were the similar idea of coming together, of bringing people from different backgrounds and different places together to eat wonderful food, to debate. They would have like a guest of honor, and they would celebrate together, discuss, debate. And the idea was that when you eat in that social way, that it opens up a space. It opens up an opportunity. It creates an environment of relaxation where you can talk where you can debate, where you can discuss, where you can celebrate in a way that you can't if you aren't eating together. And so I think there's a beautiful idea there about, fast, about feasting. But what is it? What is the spiritual significance of feasting, particularly if you're not a Jew, but if you are a Christian? Is it something that's relevant? Well, Jesus has some things to say about it. The first thing that Jesus has to say about feasting is that a great feast should always be a celebration of him. A great feast should always be a celebration of Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus answered when challenged by the Pharisees, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast when he's with you? You see, the, the Pharisees were big into fasting. Two days a week, they would stop eating altogether when it was light. They were really religious. They were really serious about it. And so when they looked at Jesus, they said, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, well, have you ever seen anyone fast at a wedding? I don't know if you're married today or if you've been to a wedding recently. I don't know how many of those weddings involved fasting. Probably not that many. Why? Because when you go to a wedding, it's a celebration. 
It's a celebration of a particular thing that is happening in a spiritual and emotional space that everybody wants to come around and say, yeah, this is fantastic. This is amazing. This is what we're all about. And so what do you do as the physical representation of that thing that's happening in front of you? You feast. You celebrate. And in the Jewish world, people had waited for thousands and thousands of years for a Messiah figure to come, for someone to come and save them, to reconcile them, someone to come and end the darkness and the brokenness and the sinfulness in the world, and they were waiting for this Messiah figure. And so when Jesus comes, Jesus says, it is here. This is what's happening right now. I am the bridegroom. My church is the bride. So this is not a moment for fasting. This is not a moment to be sad. This is not a moment to wish that things were different. This is a moment of celebration. You don't fast at a wedding. And it's interesting that that's true if you look back in the Bible right to Genesis. At another time when God's presence was with his people, when there was an unfiltered sense of the kingdom being real, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what does God say to Adam and Eve? Eat, eat, eat everything you want, except for that one thing. Eat everything you want, celebrate, because my kingdom is here, my presence is with you. That we are invited as Christians to celebrate Jesus in the way that we eat. Now that might surprise you. We're invited to party, just as Adam and Eve did, just as Jesus and his disciples did. That's why, um, before Christmas ever became about Father Christmas, or the Coke advert, or elf on the shelf. It was a celebration, right? It was a celebration of Jesus coming. That's why Easter, Easter Sunday, is all not about bunnies and Easter eggs, but it's all about Jesus. We celebrate for 2,000 years. The church has come together around a meal to say Jesus has come. It's why when we take communion, which we'll do next Sunday, it's more of a symbolic feast, but it's a feast. It's a feast of bread and wine saying Jesus has come amongst us. It's beautiful, it's joyful, and we should celebrate because Jesus celebrated. I mean, Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine, in case you were wondering. We are invited to celebrate. But as well as being about Jesus, like generally, actually great feasting is also about salvation. Notice in verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything behind, and followed him. Now we'll come to the Levi character in a minute. But do you notice, here is someone who encounters the saving grace of Jesus, who literally stands up, leaves his old life behind, goes, repents, and follows Jesus. And what's the outcome? A banquet, a celebration, a feast. Now, in case you think that's just an incidental detail, think about another story in the Bible. Think about the story of the prodigal son, right? This young guy who takes his inheritance, squanders everything, wild living, completely out of control, eventually runs out of money, comes back to his father. The father runs to embrace him gathers him up in his arms, gives him his coat. And then what does he do? Give him advice about how to live better next time? Tell him off? No. They slaughter the fattened calf, and they have a banquet. They have a feast. A feast is a celebration of salvation. 
And in case you're wondering, Jesus also says, when one sinner repents, there will be a party in heaven going on. If you're not a Christian, you want to give your life to Jesus this morning, there will be a party in heaven for you to celebrate. And when you think forward, and maybe you never think forward about heaven, I don't know, but here's one thing you might think more about heaven when you hear what Isaiah has to say about heaven. Isaiah 25, 6 and 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast, food for all peoples, a feast of the rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Just notice, two mentions of wine, one of meat, nothing of vegetables. Just, just, just saying, just saying. <laughs> Revelation 19, hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. That we feast in those moments when we say God's kingdom is here with us. Might sound strange, it might sound weird, but they feasted in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, when he came to earth, feasted and partied because the kingdom had come. And one day when you and I get to heaven, we will feast with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because we will celebrate the fullness, the indwelling of the kingdom of God. You follow with me? We feast because it's the right thing to do. But I want to suggest that feasting also, as well as having this this upward, downward dimension, it also has a horizontal dimension to feasting. The Pharisees say, why are you feasting with sinners? Not only why are you feasting generally, but why are you hanging out with this guy, Levi? Now, Levi was a tax collector, and the tax collectors were basically the Jewish mafia. They worked on behalf of the Roman government to extort people, to fill their pockets. They were like snitches and informants from the Romans. They were hated by everybody, even though they were extremely wealthy because they took everybody's money. And Jesus says to them, why are you hanging out with the teachers, with the tax collectors? What are you doing? And of course, the implication is that to eat with somebody has more significance than if you and I think about hanging out in an In-N-Out burger and someone else is hanging out in an In-N-Out burger. To eat with someone is this sense of mutuality, of acceptance, of love and respect. And so to hang out with a Jewish tax collector is to say, well, we agree and we love these Jewish tax collectors. And the Pharisees say, why would you do that? And of course, Jesus says, well, that's exactly what I came for that the feast is actually a setting for healing and reconciliation, which I love. I mean, you know, it's fascinating having a second birthday today, and I know it's crazy doing it in January because of everything that's happened and COVID in the world. But over the last few years, we've, we've all changed about how we live. You know, I, I think about the meals that I have missed with my family, Think about the celebrations and the banquets that I've not been able to go to. But it's interesting that I think if you think about how our whole society has related to banquets and meals, we've all probably in some way missed out on some of those meals. And I don't mean the ones with our immediate family, but I mean the ones with people who are really different to us. You know, if you think about, you know, maybe somebody you know who two years ago you used to hang out with and maybe you used to drink a cup of coffee with or have a great meal with and, you know, you knew they were a bit different to you. You knew you might not agree on everything to do with society with them, but it didn't matter because you loved them, because you had a connection with them, you had a community with them. Now, if you 
have that same person in your life and now you look at them and you think, I think they've gone mad. You know, I think they might actually be evil now or infested by a demon, what's happened? And you don't have a relationship with them anymore. Maybe for some of us, the reason that that hasn't happened, it's happened, that division has happened, is because in our society, no longer do we come together like they did in the first, society, first, um, first years of Jesus. To eat, to look one another in the eye, to share a glass of something, to love, to listen to one another, to debate their differences and to commit to be together, we don't do that. What have we done instead is we, we've gone for podcasts or social media or Zoom and all of those things have a place and they're great, right? But they miss that central element of coming together in community and communion with one another. And what does Jesus do? He uses the place of the meal to come together with people who were absolutely radically different as a place of healing, as a place of communion and joining together. And I just wonder, like I wonder as we think about 2022, particularly after Omicron's gone through, could we do that? Could we feast? Could we choose to have meals, even have cups of coffee with people who aren't like us? Could it be a place of healing? Like in, in 2016, a bunch of Christians up in the Bay Area, they looked at everything that was happening around that election and they were really worried about it and they were really concerned and they prayed and they said, like, God, what can we do in our neighborhoods that would make a difference to bring healing? And they read this passage and they came up with the idea. They said, well, what if we, rat, if we just did a community feast? And so they created these huge, great feasts and they invited people to come from everywhere and anywhere across the political spectrums, across the age spectrums. And the deal was that you could eat together, but as you ate together, different people would take it in turns to speak about what they really cared about. And people talked about the local environment or the local um, politics, or they talked about the election or whatever it was. And as people spoke, amazingly, healing happened. Reconciliation happened. In fact, the first one was so successful, they went on to do it again and again and again and again. And there's now a whole book about what happened, that they created these community places of eating. So I wonder for you and for me, like this year, could we eat? Could we eat safely with people who are nothing like us? Because that's what Jesus did. He chose to eat with people who were totally different. Now, before we go on to fasting, I want to just say one thing, because I don't want you to go home and miss hear what I said. Feasting is not getting drunk and having a wild party. Just, just so you don't quote me, miscommunicate me. Right? In the Roman culture of the time, it was very known for Romans to get completely out of control, and they would drink so much that they could hardly stand up, and they would have a particular toast, which was that they would get their glass of wine, and they would smash it against someone else's glass of wine, and their phrase was, you're going to die. Genuinely true. That was their phrase. It was like this nihilistic idea of like, this is all we've got, so let's get completely smashed and let's like, and then forget all about it. That is not feasting, right? Feasting is not forgetting about everything and getting a hangover. Feasting is coming together and being present to one another, not not present to one another. So just so you know. Okay. All right. That's feasting. So quickly, what's fasting then? Well, if Feasting is this moment when we celebrate the indwelling of this is the kingdom and this is what it looks like and this is the place of salvation and healing that we're seeing around us. Then fasting is the opposite. Fasting is where we look at things that are out there and we say, it's not there yet. It's not right yet. Where feasting is the now of the kingdom, fasting is the not yet of the kingdom. And it was a deeply held Jewish practice. 
As I said at the beginning, the Pharisees fasted twice every week. Two whole days out of seven, they would fast. Now, when I talk to Christians about fasting, generally they go, oh, phew, so good that we don't live under the Jewish law. So grateful. Like, I'm up for feasting, but don't talk to me about fasting. I'm so not interested. Or they say, well, fasting is not just about food, is it about something else? Well, is it? Is there anything about fasting that might be helpful? Well, it's really interesting that Jesus says, when you fast. His implication is that you will fast. Not as some sort of dieting fad or idea of losing weight, but because it's a spiritual discipline. There's something about it. You can feel the energy in the room has gone. Like, what are you talking about now, Ben? We were up with you a minute ago. We've lost you now. This is why it matters. Because, firstly, as I just said, fasting recognizes, yearns, and longs for the inbreaking of the kingdom. Notice verse 35. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, which is Jesus being taken from us, which is now, right? And in those days, they will fast. It was a sense of weeping and mourning and yearning. And if you look out the world outside and you don't weep and mourn and yearn, then maybe you haven't been watching any news over the last two years. We too are invited to embody that motion of longing for something that's different for longing for the inbreaking of the kingdom. It's where we remember that there is sin in the world, where there is brokenness, where we don't pretend that it doesn't exist. We don't, as Christians, have to go, everything's actually fantastic, we're already in heaven. We don't say that. We recognize both the celebration, but also that we need God's kingdom to come. The brokenness does exist out there. And, by the way, brokenness does exist in here. And we fast to acknowledge something of the brokenness. We also, and this is maybe more surprising, we also fast to recognize the glory and the presence of God. Now, interesting, okay. There are four, uh, three sorry, major 40-day fasts in the Bible. Two in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Anyone know when the first one is? Another little quiz. Who, fa- who was the first person to be recorded as fasting for 40 days? Anyone know? No? Moses. Okay, Moses goes up, encounters the presence of the Lord on the top of Mount Sinai, the most incredible encounter, um, receives the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and it says in Exodus 34 that he, for 40 days, fasted. Fascinating. The second one is Elijah. Elijah encounters the angel of the Lord. The presence of God is all around him, and his response to encountering the presence of the Lord is for 40 days, 1 Kings 19.8. He fasted. And the third fast, which I'm sure you do know, in the New Testament, who fasted for 40 days? I told you the answer was always Jesus. (laughs) Jesus fasted. What happened? He encountered the presence of God at his baptism. His Holy Spirit came in power and might, and off the back, he fasted. It's interesting, isn't it? When these people encountered God and wanted to remove all distractions so that they could have this unfiltered communication with God, what did they do? They fasted. Now that, to me, is really challenging because I'm a charismatic, which means that I believe I want to meet with the presence of God all the time. And I'm quite good at doing it with my hands in the air. I'm quite good at doing it in singing my favorite worship songs. I'm reasonably good at doing it praying, but I am not that good at doing it by choosing not to fast, to choosing to fast. 
When they fasted, what they did is they removed the distractions. They said, we don't want anything to get in between us and God. And so we're going to get rid of all the things for 40 days that get in their way because we are so serious about the presence of God. We want to meet him. And in case you think that that's just them, when Saul and Barnabas are seeking God for the future of the global church and they don't know what to do in the book of Acts, what do they do? They fasted. They fast. Acts 13.2. Sometimes we think fasting is miserable and depressing and sad and it's this kind of thing we do when our pastors emotionally bully us into being more serious about not eating. When actually fasting is an encounter with the presence of God. And that's what we're invited into. So what else about fasting? Well, just one more thing I want to say for time. Fasting also does something deep in our spiritual lives of rebooting and resetting our lives. Um, over Christmas, my, uh, my laptop, which just so happens to be made by a company who have a food as their brand. Other laptops are available. Right? It completely ran to a halt, like it died. I'd cleared out all the trash, I'd taken all the cache files off it, I'd removed all the old files I didn't need, and it, but yeah, it just it was done. Would not even do anything. And so I phoned on the tech support guys and I said, hey, what's, what's wrong with my laptop? And they said, well, here's the thing, for two years you've been churning away, you've been using it eight hours a day, and basically it is so filled up with temporary files and cache files and junk that there is literally nothing you can do at this point other than resetting it. You need to do a whole factory reset of your laptop and start all over again and rebuild up all the pieces of it and it will be fine. And so for like two days over Christmas, I went through and I deleted everything and I started all over again. Of course, it worked fine and it's really good now. But it's interesting to me that dietitians and health experts, doctors, are increasingly saying to us that fasting is a way that we do that too. It's a way that we do that to reset our immune systems, our metabolic systems. And I think that's really fascinating that we're figuring that out 2,000 years after Jesus told us to do it. But it's also a way that we can do it spiritually. If you come to church and your like, head is full of junk and your like, brain is full of all the things that are going on in the world and you're overwhelmed by screens or overwhelmed by the news or overwhelmed by food or whatever it is, Jesus says, here's a way that you can hit the reset fast. Stop it. Take it away for a period and see what I can do. Now, Jesus had nothing to say about screen time, but I wonder if Jesus had lived in our generation whether he might have spoken about fasting screens. Fasting is a way that we stop. It's a way that we say, God, you get this moment. You get this time. This is for you, and we want you to meet us in this place. And so I wonder, you know, as I finish, I wonder, like, what could it look like for us? I'm not going to bully you into a fast, but I am going to invite you into a fast. Because once a month, when we started Vintage Pasadena two years ago, we thought, we want to be serious about God. Once a month, we want to reset our systems and get serious about focusing on God. We want to have this moment of coming together. And so once a month on a Thursday, third Thursday, although this one is the fourth Thursday, we fast and we pray. And so this Thursday, we do it just out of our own volition, and not an order, but we come together we do it at 9 o'clock out here for 20 minutes, and we just gather around, and we pray for each other, and we walk around, and we pray for this area. We do it at midday on Zoom as well, and we pray, and we're together. And I'd love to invite you to come and do it. It's this Thursday. Super easy. Even if you, 
you know, you don't have lots of time, you can still fast, choose to miss a meal, choose to put something aside to take God seriously. So just finally then, how do you fast? Well, Jesus says this. Number one, regularly. We do fast. We're invited to. We're told to fast, not because we have to, because it's a rule, but because it's an invitation. Secondly, we fast in secret and hidden. The Pharisees were so good at standing up in front of everyone and going, I'm so hungry because I'm so spiritual. That is not what fasting is. Fasting is between you and God and not between you and anybody else. And so we can do that. And then thirdly, which I just adding on the end, I just said a minute ago, fasting can be not just food. We can also fast other things, but we must also consider fasting food. And this is the radical difference of the kingdom of God. This is what we are invited into. It's a whole other picture that Jesus uses of wine and wineskins, but it's the same thing. It's the radical inbreaking of a new way of being that is countercultural, that's different, that completely defies expectations, but it's all about seeing God's kingdom come and his will done in our lives as in heaven. Are you up for it? At least 50% the first half you're up for, the second half I have may not have persuaded you yet. Okay, let's pray.